0: You know, there's a uh, frequent term that is used in the business world called restructuring. And to restructure is to reconsider your strategy, to redeploy your resources in order to maximize the likelihood of fulfilling your overall mission, your overall goal. In order to compete in the global economy today, many companies have been forced to do major reconstructing and it is really an act of humility because it involves an acknowledgement that there is need for change. That's what restructuring brings about, the needed change. And restructuring requires two things. The first thing it requires is a clear understanding of what's at the bottom line. What's the goal? Where is it that you are heading? And secondly, it requires a willingness, if you will, to rearrange everything around activities that will help to most achieve that said goal. And and not just corporations restructure, but sports franchises do it, churches do it, even families restructure as they pass through different seasons of life. But most importantly, individuals can also restructure and individuals need to restructure. In fact, I believe this concept of restructuring helps us to uh, understand what should be a critical habit of any Christ follower, repentance. And today as we continue in our series we've titled Essentials, this New Year's series, we're going to talk about a life-altering repentance. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles if you would to the book of Matthew chapter 3. We are going to look at this very essential and often misunderstood critical habit of those who follow Jesus. But I want to give you a little bit of a background on this scripture before we read it. Matthew is, of course, the first book in the New Testament. Well, the time between the last of the Old Testament writings to New Testament times is 400 years. God has been silent for 400 years, and the people have been waiting for a prophet they have been waiting for a voice. They've been waiting for some indication that God has not forgotten them. But now the time has been fulfilled and Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. But it is John the Baptist who is sent to prepare the way. And this is what Matthew is writing about Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen behind me. his food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I want to draw your attention back to verse 2 where John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the most pivotal announcement in all of human history because it is God's great clarion call for lost mankind and it is the same announcement that is repeated regularly throughout the New Testament in the very next chapter after Jesus begins his public ministry listen to how it is summarized in Matthew 4:17 for that time on Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to preach, it says in Luke 9, verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Even after Jesus resurrected, it appear, he appears to his followers, and in Acts 1, 3, it says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about, anybody want to guess, the kingdom of God. In fact, the very last a verse in the book of Acts provides a final glimpse of the apostle Paul in Rome. Acts 28:30 says, "For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all with all boldness and without hindrance." You and I need to reflect On the importance of what these words spoken through the new testament actually mean repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near so to help you with this this morning i want you to think of the hidden desire of your heart the thing that that you most long for the thing that that gets you up out of bed in the morning you see if these words that i've read to you this morning are true and i know them to be true then they are the most important words that have been spoken in the history of this twisted and fallen world in which we live. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you don't experience a deep sense of joy when you hear these words, then there's something is, is wrong because this is the goal of all human beings. This is the bottom line this is the mission ladies and gentlemen the kingdom of heaven has come near it is possible for human beings like you and me to live in the real and tangible presence and under the actual reign of almighty god it is possible for human beings like you and i to live free of guilt it is possible to see yourself as a creation of ultimate value. It is possible to receive adequate power to face this life head on. There is now an alternative to the me-first, power-hungry, weak and oppressing kingdom of this world. This is the gospel message. Listen to how Mark summarizes and describes Jesus' message in Mark 1.14. Jesus comes to Galilee proclaiming the gospel the good news of God. You see, the good news is not just that the kingdom exists. The kingdom has existed throughout all of eternity. The good news as is that the kingdom of God has come near. It is now fully available and accessible to mankind. The good news is that the kingdom of God is now available to people who thought they were a million miles away from it. It is available as a gift of grace People who were once lost sinners can now enter into the kingdom living. Amen. You see, the kingdom is often misunderstood, and it, it, and it did not come in the way that people expected it would arrive. And Jesus was, was ha- constantly having to clarify this the nature of his Father's kingdom. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, It says this, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, It wasn't my Father's plan for the kingdom of God to break into this world in a highly visible and dramatic way. Or forceful kind of a way. And most people are not going to say, look, there it is, or look, here it is. In fact, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is right here among you. Where? In the person of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his teachings, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, the kingdom of God is entered into human history. That is the bottom line for all of us human beings. It is possible for us to live In the kingdom of God. Now all that I have shared with you up to this point has been done for a reason because in light of this tremendous offer John the Baptist and later on Jesus calls people to one response and it's going to be our topic for today. It is the only option for people who want to enter into kingdom living. The response is as John says to repent. Not just because you've done something wrong, because, because, of course, we all have, but repent because now it is possible for all human beings to live in the presence and under the reign of Almighty God. You see, I believe that there is widespread confusion regarding what repentance really means. I believe that there are many sincere Christians who, have been, who haven't been able to experience the kind of transformed living that Jesus offers. They haven't been able to fully participate in the kingdom. It's not been through a lack of good intentions, but because they have never understood the true meaning of repentance. It's largely been lost. So I'm here to provide this morning a high-definition look at what repentance is all about. You see, for many people, when you hear the word repent... This is the first association that comes to most of our minds. We think it means feeling really, really, really bad about what we've done, and we think in terms of it being primarily an emotional experience. And though that is certainly elements of repentance, that is not all that it's about. I remember when I attended church summer camp when I was a teenager, and it seemed like the whole visit was about producing that kind of an experience. Five days of sleep deprivation and diets of sugar and fat and a whole lot of reflection. And we held hands around a campfire singing what appeared to be 100 verses of Kumbaya. And in that environment, people would confess. They'd spill their guts. They would confess anything. In fact, I'm convinced some kids made stuff up. Please understand, their, their feelings were sincere, but it didn't bring about the lasting change. And therein lies the problem. And I want to suggest this morning that many of us have an inadequate theology regarding repentance. And it doesn't attend adequately to our humanity, nor does it bring about the necessary change within us. I met a man who told me about an area of temptation and struggle in his life that, that he, where he fell regularly and it bothered him greatly. And he said, when I'm down, there's no one more repentant than me, Pastor. And he prays, God, if you'll get me out of this one, I'm your man. But he's living this crazy cycle where once he gets out of trouble and the pain subsides, his motivation to change is gone. And he seems to spin in this predictable cycle, and I believe this is more common than any one of us think. Jesus did not say, feel really bad, for the kingdom of God is near. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Greek word for repent is the word metanoia. It means a change of mind. It means a change of heart. It means doing an about face. It means doing a U-turn. It means going in a totally different direction. It's not designed to be a quick fix for your emotions or your guilt. It's designed to move you in a new direction. Dallas Willard provides probably one of the best definitions that I've heard. He writes, to repent is to reconsider your strategy for living. In my mind, that really hits the nail on the head. You know, we all have strategies for living. We all have certain activities and accomplishments that we are betting will pay off for us in the end. Whether we have formally articulated them or not, they're still there. Well, Jesus says it is possible to live in the presence and under the reign of God, and now that there is a clear understanding of this as the goal of life and as the ultimate possibility for human beings, he says to us, the time has come to restructure. The time has come to reconsider your strategy living. To rearrange your life around activities that will help you, like I said last week, to live the way that Jesus would live if he were in your body. And of course, those of us who have received Christ's salvation, now the Spirit of God lives in us. So therefore, we ought to want to live our lives in a God-honoring way. Amen? Amen? And to repent is not something that you only do once. The Bible calls us to a lifestyle of repentance. It calls you to read the Bible with a repentant heart. It calls you to be open to God's molding as opposed to looking for ammunition to prove that you are theologically correct all of the time. It calls you to deal with people with a repentant spirit instead of being immediately apt to harsh, harshly evaluate and judge them. It calls people to be open to correction and redirection by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I have found that those among us who are harsh and who cast critical judgments on other people and their actions are the ones who truly do not understand this concept of repentance. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world. The idea here is that there is constant pressure that is being exerted upon us in this world. It's constant daily pressure regarding security and and, and power and control and pleasure and money and compromise. And it's constant. It's in what you hear. It's in what you read. It's in what people say. So Paul says, instead of allowing these forces to shape you, he says, be transformed. Be changed. Enter into a new kind of a life of the kingdom of God by the renewing of your mind through the word of God and through the washing of the spirit. This is exactly what John means when he talks about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go back to our opening scripture because I want you to see how Matthew writes about the validity of John the Baptist in verse 3. He says, this is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. In other words, he says, this is the guy. This is John. And then Matthew uses a quotation from the Old Testament to explain what it is that John is doing. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Matthew is using a a travel metaphor here. Have you ever lived someplace where the roads are in a constant state of disrepair? (laughs) Yeah, I think we do in Red Bluff, don't we? I've never seen roads so busted up in my life. We must be the poorest county in all of the world. That's all I can say. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. And if you're a politician in here today, do something about it. I give you a lot of my tax money. I'm sorry, I'll calm down now. It's very common in cold, cold climate states. I'm from Michigan, and with all the ice and the snow and the salt that they used to put on the roads, the, the roads are busted up. No matter how hard you try to reconstruct these roads, the deterioration continues to happen faster than the repair process does. There is more rut in Detroit than there is road. And in Red Bluff. <laughs> never, never viewed Red Bluff and Detroit in the same thing, honey, but they're there, aren't they? John the Baptist is saying that Jesus wants to travel on a road. But the road that Jesus wants to travel on is the road that goes to your heart. Amen. The kingdom of God wants to operate in you. But you have to prepare the way. You've got to ask, what is clogging the road to my heart? Or maybe better yet, what are all these ruts for there, are there for? What's keeping me for for, uh, participating more fully in the kingdom of God? Very often, this business of of repenting, of, of preparing a road will involve choices that are not dramatic or even particularly emotional, but they are at the heart of what repentance is. It has to do with looking hard at all of the influences that are a part of your life and taking it a step further by eliminating all of those influences that completely distract you away from God's kingdom. It can be relationships that you're in that are destroying you. It could be what you read. You have a constant diet of reading or television or movie watching of things that that are drawing you away from God that aren't moving you closer to God. It's about eliminating those influences that you know are harmful to your Christian walk. You think you're impervious to those things, and you're not. The enemy uses those things to undermine your relationship with God. This is a part of what preparing the way is all about. Now Matthew goes on in verse 4 to say, John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. Now, you may think that's an odd thing to put in that scripture, and when I first read it, I did too, but you've got to understand, Matthew doesn't include these details to make some kind of a fashion statement. It is connected to the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Let me explain. In 2 Kings chapter 1, it talks about Elijah. Elijah was a prophet, but he was not just any prophet. The Old Testament says that, that Elijah was a prophet who would come again before the Messiah comes. In Malachi chapter 4, it tells us before the Messiah comes, God will send Elijah. The people are waiting for Elijah, or they're waiting for a prophet to play the role of Elijah. The book of 2 Kings, it also talks about the clothing that Elijah wore. And you want to guess what it was? Clothing of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Matthew wants to make crystal clear, particularly to his Jewish readers, that would be very familiar with the history of Elijah, that this is the one you've been waiting for. This means the real Messiah is coming. This is the real kingdom of God. And in verse five, he goes on to talk about the response of the people in Jerusalem and all Judea and that entire region along the Jordan River. John's offer is so compelling that the whole countryside flocks to this strange man hanging out in the wilderness. It, and, and really what is remarkable is what they were going out into the wilderness for. They were being baptized by John in the Jordan River and they were confessing their sins. People were so compelled by this opportunity to enter into the kingdom of, he- of heaven that they were willing to confess their sins publicly. You see, repentant people are, take very seriously the existence of of sin and its ability to destroy life. Repentant people have given up trying to convince other people that they're not sinners. Some of you here today who are interested in restructuring and repenting will need to begin a regular practice of confessing to God and even to yourself. You see, these people who were getting baptized were involved in a public act, and I'd like to suggest the importance of of having brothers and sisters in Christ that you can share your struggles with. One of the problems with besetting habitual sin and struggles in your life is keeping it secret. You need at least a few people in your life with whom you have no secrets because along with being open with them will come accountability naturally to them. And I've got to say, I have never seen a group of people who do this better than celebrate recovery. Ron, Ron pays me five bucks every time I give him a, a, a plug on Sunday morning, so no, I'm kidding. Ten, it's ten today. That was a good one, Ron. <laughs> when, when one of the people in Celebrate Recovery is struggling, it amazes me the amount of people that come alongside that individual to encourage them. And I think one of the best places where you can find that kind of encouragement and accountability comes from getting plugged into one of our small groups. That's where those kind of relationships are developed because that's where you build, uh, uh, not superficiality, but you, you develop actual deep relationships with fellows, brothers and sisters in the Lord. I guess what I'm saying is that we need to quit acting like we're perfect because you and I both know that isn't true, I don't care who you are. And we need to get transparent with God and we need to get transparent with ourselves and with each other, and we need to lift each other up. If you want to respond to this news that it is possible to live in the presence and under the realm of reign of Almighty God, it's good to have a place where you can develop that kind of trust, where you could have a brother or a sister in the Lord that you could share your struggles with so you don't have to carry those burdens around secretly and hidden anymore. So you don't have to come to church pretending like you never sinned, like the religious leaders of that day did. These are the guys who arrive in verse 7, the religious experts who suffer from a malady that is very common among religious people, even today. They are more interested in looking good than being good. These religious leaders were people who mastered the look of holiness and of piety and of righteousness but they were hollow down to the very core of who they were. Jesus commented on these guys later on in the Gospels when he says that they clean up the outside of the cup, the part that is visible, but on the inside, he said they're filled with greed and self-indulgence. So as you continue on in Matthew chapter three, these guys come to visit John the Baptist. They're important people. And so you might expect that John would be very careful about what he says to them I mean they wield a lot of influence they're very high on the ladder of importance but I want you to listen to how he greets them in Matthew 3:7. but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing them he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come that's not a compliment ladies and gentlemen that's not a statement designed to ingratiate him into their hearts And then he makes this statement in verse 8, which provides us with what I believe is the true litmus test for authentic repentance when he tells them this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is a major theme throughout the New Testament, that true repentance can be recognized because it leads to the bearing of fruit. And when you think about fruit, I want you to think about the fruit of the Spirit. It leads to love. It leads to joy. It leads to peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And ultimately, it leads to that last one that's so hard for some of us, for all of our life, self-control. Authentic repentance, high point, is recognized because it bears fruit. Because people who repent and people who understand God's grace and what it really means are so appreciative for it that they begin to to live a life as Christ would live. They become loving people, and that is exactly what the religious leaders of that day lacked. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, for all of their spiritual pedigree, for all of their religious exercises that they did, they fail precisely in this area of love. In fact, when the gospel comes, everyone understands that the kingdom of God is now available to everybody, including tax collectors and thieves and prostitutes and murderers and liars and cheaters or whatever other kind of description you want to give to varying sinners like you and me. The Pharisees show how damaged spiritually that they are precisely by their lack of love. And it's manifested, get this, it's manifested in the fact that they are actually offended that the kingdom of God is now available to everyone and not their elite little club. And because they're not looking for it, they completely miss the heart of it. Paul says the same thing in the book of Acts, Acts 26, 20. The second half of that verse says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. You know, many stories of Jesus encountering people in the Bible are stories of him making an offer. It's an offer that they can live in the kingdom of God by calling them to repent and then to follow them, follow him. To look at how he lives and to emulate the way he lives in their own personal life. Basically, ladies and gentlemen, he calls us to restructure. And I want to take a quick look at one such story, story of a religious guy found in the book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark 10, 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do? To inherit eternal life he runs to make sure that he can he can reach Jesus there's an urgency about him he kneels down before God which, before Jesus which was not really a typical thing in that day but he does it as a show of respect and he calls Jesus good and in verse 8 Jesus responds this way why do you call me good no one is good except God alone In other words, Jesus is beginning to hint to him you might be underestimating what goodness is really all about. It may be about something far deeper and far more profound, young man, than you understand. Of course, in addition to that, Mark wants us to know that unwittingly, this guy is actually affirming Jesus' status as a son of God. He is affirming him as one who brings the kingdom of God in his person. And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? And then he goes on to recite some of the commandments. These are taken from the Ten Commandments. They have to do with interpersonal relationships. Some of them have to do with our relationship with God, while others have to do with our relationship with other people. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother, Now, Jesus doesn't say obeying those things will get you eternal life. He just says, you know them. So this very sincere and committed religious guy, here's what Jesus says, and you can just imagine this sigh of relief that comes across his lip when he says in verse 20, Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He says, it's okay then, I've covered the basis Jesus, I've kept all of these since my youth. I've observed them. He's thinking I passed. I made the grave. But I just needed to make sure. Well, the scriptures say that Jesus looked at him. And Jesus loved him. Jesus is moved with compassion for him as he always is for needy people. But then Jesus says, there is one thing that you lack. And the guy's thinking to himself, I'm sure, well, that shouldn't be too bad. I spent my whole life obeying the commandments. One more shouldn't be that bad, but Jesus says the thing you lack is the only thing that counts. You have not become a disciple. You have retained control of your life, and your life is this kind of project that you are still micromanaging by yourself every moment of every day. You lack repentance. You have not restructured your life. You have not learned the secret to life, which is to seek one thing. Do you remember what that is? Seek first the kingdom of God. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's simply another way of saying repent. It's another way of saying repent, for the kingdom of God is now at hand. So Jesus touches this guy at his point of vulnerability. And it can be different points for each and every one of us, depending on how we're hardwired. But this is his, in verse 21, Jesus tells him, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus tells him, sell everything. Sell the car, sell the RV, sell the Harley and then come and follow me. Jesus knows that for this man, his possessions are his point of vulnerability. It's, his, it's the area of his life where he gets tripped up the most. It's where his trust lies. So please understand, what Jesus is talking about to this young man is the cost of discipleship. Jesus makes it very clear that it's going to cost you and I something. In other words, you can't be a disciple and continue to live like you used to. There has to be an about face. There has to be a new direction. There has to be a new purpose. You cannot be a true disciple of Jesus Christ by having one foot in his camp and having the other foot somewhere back in the world where you used to live. You cannot be conformed to this world. You must transform your mind, your thinking. You must transform your purpose for existence. It's interesting that this man walks up and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it says in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says this because this wealthy man has come to trust his wealth in such a way that it is number one in his life. When Jesus wants to be number one in our lives, any follower, please get this. The gospel is not just that you get to go to heaven when you die. That is certainly part of it. But the gospel is that it's now possible for human beings to enter into the kingdom of God, but it's going to cost and if you're not paying any price for being a believer, you're not fully into the kingdom of God. Jesus says to this young guy, the stakes have now been raised considerably. Everything is on the table. Your house, your car, your family, your career, your hopes, your dreams. This is a high stakes game. And, and, and what is at stake here, he says, or he implies, is your very soul. So are you in or are you out? It's a decision you've got to make. Jesus says it with great love and Jesus does not pressure him because Jesus prizes our human freedom and he prizes our free will far too much. He is a gentleman in every aspect of everything he does. Well, this guy folds and he walks away. He was not prepared for stakes to be that high. He would have stayed if the pot had been a little bit smaller just a few more commandments, and he would have followed them. But this call to restructure, this call to recenter his whole life and to abandon those lesser important things, this call to this one great task of entering into the kingdom of God, he just wasn't ready for that. In fact, Mark adds in his commentary, he went away very sad. The kingdom of God was at hand. But sadly, he folded.